Barrister and solicitor with Mulligan and Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan, joining us for Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Let's uh, dive right in. I'm reading here. It's different considerations for Indigenous children result in apprehended children being returned to their mother in the first case. This is a complicated issue. It has to do with family law, something that we've already reflected upon in terms of the sensitivity of these matters. Help us understand this. It sure is a complicated and difficult area. Um, and uh, it's uh, one of the later twists and turns uh, with respect to uh, children and protection of children uh, deals with uh, now a regime that has different treatment for uh, Indigenous children and non-Indigenous children. And the way that works in BC is in BC we have the Child Family and Community Services Act, uh, which sets out the principal consideration uh, being the best interests of the child. And then it lists a number of things that are to be considered uh, by a judge when determining what is in the best interest of a child in terms of, you know, keeping them safe and so on. And not surprisingly, the very first thing listed there in terms of what a judge should think about is the child's safety, right? And then on it goes for, you know, emotional support, uh, so so forth and so on. What's complicated the area a little bit uh, is that in 2019, there was a federal act passed. It's an act respecting First Nations, Inuit and Métis children, youth and families. And it lists the best interests of Indigenous, the Indigenous child. (laughs) Uh, And it has a different set of criteria. The first criteria to be considered is not the child's safety. Rather, it is a the child's cultural, linguistic, religious, and spiritual upbringing and heritage. And then it goes on to have a list of uh, non-exclusive list of other things for the judge to take into account. But rather than starting with the child's safety, which would clearly be a consideration, uh, it directs judges that uh, the linguistic, religious, and spiritual factors are uh, significant and should play a part in the decision-making. And so that brings us to this BC case that came out uh, just last month. And as with so many of these things, it has a heartbreaking uh, background, which makes for, of course, the difficult decisions. Uh, And the heartbreaking background involves uh, a mom of four children, single mother. Uh, The children have different uh, fathers. Um, She herself had a tragic uh, upbringing, uh, which included her father dying in a motor vehicle accident when she was only four or five, and her mother being a severe drug addict dying in 2011 uh, when she was just a teenager. Uh, It describes her background, the mother's background, as a a home involving uh, instability and abuse. Um, And now, perhaps not surprisingly, Um, she has been struggling for many years as a mother. Um, She dropped, she, the mother, dropped her to school when she was in grade 10, fell into drug addiction, has never held a job, uh, and survives on social assistance and has cognitive difficulties. So that's the fact pattern. The, in that fact pattern, over a number of years in BC, uh, the director that deals with child protection uh, has wound up on various occasions apprehending her children out of concern for their safety. Uh, and the judge deciding this case uh, referenced the fact that there were some 120 court appearances over the years dealing with uh, her children and the ministry apprehending them out of concerns for their well-being. Uh, to give you some sense of it, some of the backgrounds included things like 
the mom being physically abused with respect to one of her partners, a partner who is described as somebody with uh, a long criminal record, including convictions for violent and sexual offenses, um, physically assaulting her, causing her to go into pre- have pre- give birth prematurely to one of the children and then refusing to bring her to hospital uh, for a period of time. Just terrible circumstances. Awful. And so uh, you've got these four poor children, right, yeah. in this awful uh, circumstance, uh, and they've been repeatedly apprehended. And when children are apprehended, the legislation contemplates trying to make a decision promptly because, of course, you know, delays can be harmful to kids. They need stability. And so when children are apprehended, a decision needs to be made. Well, what should happen before we have the full trial to determine whether the children would be better off in care or better off with a parent or what should happen? And so the judge in this case determined, first of all, that the provincial director did have reasonable grounds to be concerned about the immediate danger to these children. There was a long list of uh, concerns they had on the most recent apprehension, including them not being treated for lice, not attending school, not having proper hygiene, questionable people coming to the house, not sound judgments being made, awful circumstances. But then the judge had to decide, yes, there were grounds to... Uh, apprehend them. I mean, if the director acted properly, but then the judge had to go on to determine what was best until they have the full hearing. And of course, we don't have enough judges or courtrooms. And so these hearings often take much longer than really they should. Um, And so the judge had to determine what was the best way to care for the children until they have the full hearing, right? There's been 120 court appears over many years. And so that brought the judge to this difference between what judges are directed to do with children and what judges are directed to do with indigenous children. And they're not the same, the judge found. Um, And it was complicated to some extent here because the mom identifies as indigenous uh, through her her mother, but uh, the First Nation uh, from Saskatchewan does not recognize her as being a member of the First Nation, nor do they say the mother was a member of the First Nation. But Nonetheless, that's how she identifies, and so that's how this case was being analyzed. And so when the judge applied this test, which is different, um, and points out that, for example, the federal legislation, which the judge found takes priority, um, it, it begins with a preamble talking about the UN Declaration on the Conventions and Rights of the Child. Uh, it talks about... Um, the uh, uh, agreements Canada has in terms of treatment of Indigenous people. And because of the priority that the Federal Act places on maintaining um, things like uh, cultural, linguistic, and religious upbringing of the children, the judge concluded that because of that, these children should be, despite the concerns, again, returned to their mother. Um, and that uh, the uh, there should be uh, efforts made uh, to, they described it as provide wraparound support for the mother, recognizing that she just has an inability to care for the children without, again, the term wraparound support. So I don't know, that sounds like sort of a very careful monitoring and lots of help giving all, given all of her uh, challenges and this very long and tragic background. And so... The case does really raise important issues for people to think about in terms of how do we prioritize these things. And 
you know, what should judges be told to take into account? Because the judge, after all, is just doing what the judge has been told to do uh, by Parliament. Um, and uh, the Parliament, of course, has recognized uh, the harms caused by things like the 60s scoop and, uh, you know, a large percentage of kids in care being um, Indigenous. Um, and so the judge is doing what the judge is told to do. Uh, but, you know, I think we need to think carefully about that. Yeah. Um, and how do we prioritize those things? How, how do you prioritize the short-term legitimate concern about, you know, the judge points out the ongoing risk posed by one of the fathers having not only this history of sexual and physical violence and a, a head injury, um, you know, how do you weigh that up? Um, against the uh, harm caused if the uh, children are denied sort of connections to their um, culture and identity. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we've made that choice here. We as a society have made that choice. You know, that federal legislation came in in 2019. Uh, but, you know, boy, is it worrisome because when you read these hard cases, they are tragic. It is, you know, it's uh, what kind of a chance do these kids have, right? What kind of a chance did this mom have, right, yeah. given that background? Um, and so um, I, I think we all need to think carefully about that. Of course, now everyone is trying to be very sensitive not to cause uh, harm uh, in a longer-term way. But what do we do, right? What do we do as a society or as a, a judge when you're faced with this kind of a hard case? Uh, and so that's the decision that's been made, and it's, uh, I think, clear from the decision, had the mother not identified as Indigenous, um, there may well have been a different conclusion there, because the judge would have then been prioritizing um, things like the safety of the children, uh, and also of interest, uh, in the same mix, um, the Supreme Court of Canada has recently made clear that biological connections to children have little importance uh, in terms of determining where a child should be or what the best interests of the child should be. Mm. And they came to that approach, bearing in mind things like, you know, major changes over the structure of families, including, you know, families that are have um, same-sex parents, for example, where there may be a biological connection to one parent but not the other, um, and concluding, well, that should not be a factor, right, when determining what is in the child's best interest if the two people would otherwise be um, you know, excellent parents, you, you don't uh, prioritize the person for biological reasons. Um, but um, in the case of Indigenous children, um, there is a, a the direction I've indicated in this legislation. Um, and so uh, I suppose all we can do is hope uh, in this fact pattern that the wraparound supports that the judge is hoping uh, that the uh, Director of Child Protection will uh, provide to the mom We'll keep these four kids safe uh, until uh, there can be a, a more fulsome hearing about what ought to happen in the long term. Uh, but uh, boy, I must say, reading this case and others like it, uh, they're just so worrisome in terms of um, you know what's going to become of these children. Uh, and you, you look at it and you look at the background of the mom uh, and some of the dads, um, and you think, well, what what hope do they have, right? Uh, you know, sort of kids at a very young age hundreds of court applications and a page and a half of reasons to be concerned about them. Um, you just uh, are really wor worried, or at least I am when I read it, uh, that you may just have four more kids who are in the same cycle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what can we do to try to prevent that? Michael Mulligan, Legally Speaking, we're going to take our first break. We'll be back right after this. 
Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, as we continue, legally speaking, for this week. Michael, a term that we use from time to time when we talk about litigation and law is who does and does not have public interest standing to challenge a law. What does that term mean? Yeah, what that means is it's the concept of allowing uh, an individual or group to engage in litigation over some issue, usually a constitutional challenge of some kind, which doesn't directly affect them, right? You, usually people in court are there because something's impacting them, right? Hey, you backed over my fence, or hey, you're keeping me in jail, not something happened down the road I don't like, right? Uh, but there are some issues which are not going to be properly litigated in, if you don't allow others to challenge them, even where they don't have a direct interest in it. And the particular case here is a British Columbia case, uh, and it's a case which involves a challenge to the way in which uh, doctors are permitted to uh, perform uh, involuntary treatment for people who they believe have uh, mental illness and pose a risk to themselves or others. Um, and the case started out with two such people who were subject to, and I must say, <laughs> because a little concerned just even reading it, they were caused forced psychiatric treatment, including uh, psychotropic medication and electroconvulsive therapy, which wow. the latter part being kind of what you might imagine is electrocuting them. I looked up some of the concerns about that, and they, they include this, like the kind of warning you don't want on the uh, list of side effects. You may have some problems with loss of memory. They can last between a few weeks and several months. Avoid making major decisions while you're having electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, no, it's it's very, very serious uh, medical intervention treatment for depression and other matters, but yes. It's, 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 it sounds like a scene on a one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> that's what they were undergoing. And so this litigation started with two people who underwent that kind of treatment without their consent or the consent of somebody else acting on their behalf. Wow. Uh, but along with the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, that was the, uh, that organization is like a national organization with thousands of members that advocates for people with disabilities. They've got chapters all across the country. That's kind of what they do. And, Probably not surprisingly, a couple of years after this litigation started, the two people who were subject to this forced treatment dropped out of the process, right? Uh, and so then the issue became, should the uh, Council for Canadians with Disabilities be permitted to continue with this legal challenge about how those involuntary treatment decisions are made, whether they're constitutionally permissible or not? Um, and so... The judge that originally heard it in B.C. found that, no, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And so that issue got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, who just came out with a decision and concluded that, indeed, the Council for Canadians with Disabilities should be permitted to carry on. And they've emphasized, again, what the test is for that. The test is like a three-part test. It's whether the case raises serious uh, issues, basically, is this some frivolous thing or important, does the group or individual have a genuine interest in the matter, right, even if it's not a personal one, right, which this group does? Uh, and is there uh, another way in which the, the matter could reasonably be brought to court, right? And if you kind of wait on people who are believed to have serious mental illness <laughs> to bring the challenge, that's probably never happening, right? Yeah. 
Um, and I, I like this. It sort of brings it to the point. The Supreme Court of Canada then speaks about you know what the underlying purpose of is in limiting um, people to have standing. Uh, and that really amounts to the effective allocation of scarce judicial resources. And I love this screening out busybody litigants. <laughs> so, you know, the idea there is you don't want people that are just kind of litigious or want to fight about everything uh, being able to do so. You want people who are appropriate people to do it or organizations to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, and the court pointed out it's really a matter of judicial discretion. And furthermore, a judge could make an initial decision, and if it turned out they were wrong, right, it turned out like some group they uh, wasn't properly presenting the case or calling relevant evidence or doing a good job of it, whatever it might be, a judge would be permitted to reconsider the decision, right? It doesn't have to be final. Uh, and so that's the broad test. They point out that these things are really discretionary for the judge. There shouldn't be more weight on one factor than another. It's up to the judge to decide that. Uh, and so uh, the decision here, which I think was a, a good one, is, it sounds like an important issue, right? That should be sorted out. Is that a? I don't think anyone's arguing there shouldn't be some circumstance in which people could uh, get treatment they can't consent to because of their mental illness. It sounds like the argument is about how that should happen and who should make that decision, which is certainly fair enough and um, the kind of thing which is important. Uh, the other thing, the... Uh, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada did, which is significant in this case, yes. is it, it got all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada because the British Columbia government, AG's department, challenged it, right? They argued that the Canadian Council for People with Disabilities shouldn't be able to bring the claim. And then that got appealed, and then the Attorney General appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is no small undertaking. And so in addition to... Um, allowing uh, the uh, challenge to go ahead, the Supreme Court of Canada also made an order for special costs for both the Court of Appeal decision and the Supreme Court of Canada decision um, so that the uh, Council for Canadians with Disabilities isn't going to be left on the financial hook uh, for those challenges which were brought on by the uh, Provincial Attorney General uh, arguing that they shouldn't be allowed to bring the argument. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, the outcome, but uh, now the case will get litigated despite the fact that the people that were involuntarily subject to electroconvulsive therapy uh, weren't able to continue with the litigation all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. We have four minutes and 15 seconds remaining and a story that deals with $2,000 in damage for a neighbor whose bamboo crew under a fence creating a nuisance. Indeed. This is a Saanich case, local. Uh, and it's a case which went to the Civil Resolution Tribunal that now has authority to deal with tiny, small claims, claims up to $5,000. And the fact pattern was that about 10 years ago, one neighbor in somewhere in Saanich planted a bunch of bamboo, which was a type that uh, grows tendrils underground and then sprouts up. Uh, and the neighbor on the other side, who was described as having a manicured lawn, was forever um, cutting off these tendrils that were coming up. And then there was concern about whether they would interfere with uh, structures or foundations. And so the claim was brought, um, and I should say the neighbor brought it up with the other neighbor who didn't do anything about it. Eventually, the neighbor who had the bamboo popping up uh, installed a barrier. It sounds like some kind of an underground metal barrier to try to stop the bamboo from continuing to come through, which sounds like it was only partially successful. And the legal issue became... Is that, a, in the legal sense, a nuisance? Uh, 
Hmm. Um, and the test for that, a nuisance has to be a substantial, like a non-trivial um, interference with somebody's use and enjoyment of property. Um, and then there's also a requirement that the person causing the nuisance um, must know that they're causing the nuisance and not exercise reasonable care to remedy the situation, right? Mm. Here, the neighbor with the bamboo popping up told the other neighbor, hey, your bamboo's coming up. Do something about that. Put yeah. in a barrier. Stop it. And they didn't. Uh, and so that's the fact pattern in which the case proceeded. The neighbor who was having the bamboo popping up was asking for the cost of putting in the barrier, but unfortunately he didn't have all the receipts. He said it cost some $3,800, which he didn't submit. And so he got less than what he asked for. Uh, he was also asking the uh, Civil Resolution Tribunal to order the other neighbor to get rid of the bamboo or put in a barrier. And the Civil Resolution Tribunal pointed out they don't have the authority to do that, right? Neither does a small claims court judge. Uh, they don't have the authority to issue injunctions like you could get in Supreme Court. The authority, uh, in this case of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, is up to $5,000. That's all they can do. They can't order people around or direct people to go and install barriers or dig up bamboo. Uh, and so uh, the outcome here um, was a judgment for the neighbor uh, with the uh, bamboo coming up. Uh, in the amount of $2,000 plus the uh, $7.01 in prejudgment interest uh, and the 87.50 fee you need to pay uh, to have a case go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So I guess the, the uh, takeaway for people is don't be a nuisance to your neighbor. <laughs> uh, and if they point out that you're, uh, you've decided to plant ba your bamboo is coming up all over their yard, you'd be well advised to do something to try to mitigate that uh, or else you might be on the hook for the cost of the neighbor fixing the problem. So be good to your neighbors. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you so much as always. A pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye now.